you know, in the 1960s, they took these dogs and they put them in this little room with electrical shocks on the floor. And the walls of this room were just like our waist high, you know. And so they would turn the shock on and the floor would get this electrical jolt. And the dog um, had a choice. In one of the rooms, there was a door that they could just walk out of. It was no big deal. So the electrical shock would come on and the dog would jump out of the door, basically. But then in this other room, there was no door. And so you'd turn the electrical shock on and the dog would jump around and eventually it would just lay on the floor someplace and whimper as these little shocks were going. What was fascinating is that the the researchers took those dogs in the room without the escape and put them in the room with the escape and they turned the electrical switch on thinking, oh, now they have an exit, they're gonna just run out. But they didn't, They they just laid down and they took it because they had learned that there was no point in even trying. And the more you're told that you can't and that you're incapable and you can't do anything good and you're terrible, the more you're gonna just learn to be helpless. And when you believe that you're helpless, you stop trying. Uh, and that's just, that's, it doesn't make sense to try if you're helpless. And so that's where the ditch of smallness ends up nurturing us to be oppressed. The ditch of bigness ends up nurturing us to be oppressors. And how that works is that the more I believe that I'm fundamentally good, just the way I am, the more obviously my life problems must exist from somebody else. Because if I'm good, if I'm great, if I'm wonderful, then my problems must originate somewhere else. And 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 when I surround myself with like-minded people or or positive people, basically I'm surrounding myself because positivity is never defined in the positive thinking movement. It's just assumed what it means. And so what it ends up being is I end up surrounding myself with people who just agree with me and who like me and I, who I like and whatever. And so I end up nurturing this idea that that I'm in the right and the problems lie in everybody else. And, uh, and then when I start to avoid negative people, which is just the next step, um, then I start to separate myself from others. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I continue to exalt myself as good just the way I am. And the problems lie in them who I've separated myself from. And the, the more I do that, the more they become inferior in my mind. In today's episode, we're going to do a bit of theological psychology or what some might refer to as personal and spiritual formation. And I'm joined by my friend Dan Kent, who I'll tell you some more about in just a little bit, to discuss sort of the crisis of identity that many people experience, a crisis between two ditches, what Dan calls the ditch of smallness and the ditch of bigness. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Dan Kent. Today I'm joined by Dan Kent. Dan is truly a renaissance man. He's a brilliant author and theologian with degrees in psychology and a master's in Christian thought. For 20 years, he's worked in crisis mental health services. He's also authored five books and is currently the editor-in-chief for Renew.org and co-host of Greg Boyd's podcast, Greg Boyd Apologies and Explanations. Uh, He's even owned successful local businesses here in Minneapolis. He took me to a lovely tea place in, uh, in Uptown, right? That's right, yeah. Sencha Tea Bar. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and I'm not a tea drinker, and it was delicious. It was wonderful. So Dan's got a brand new book coming out this week, actually, called Confident Humility, Becoming Your Full Self Without Becoming Full of Yourself. Dan, you've uh, you've done quite well for yourself in your adult life here, uh, especially, if I might say, for someone who has admitted to only having a 1.3 GPA <laughs> in high school and 
as I've learned from some of the conversations we've had and from your book, you endured some unique challenges mm-hmm. in your childhood. Can you can you tell us a bit about what that childhood was like? Yeah. Uh, well, for sure, it, it was definitely unique. Um, it, you know, my mom, she this was up in the country, so middle of Minnesota, and she was uh, very young when she had me. She was 13 when she was pregnant, and uh, she was 14 when she finally had me. But, uh, uh, you know, at that age, everybody thought that she should get an abortion, and she decided that she would keep me, uh, and she ended up raising me on her own. I mean, she was with my dad for a short time, but he was kind of, at the time he was very abusive and he had a lot of problems. And, uh, so she ended up fleeing and bringing me with to Minneapolis here. And she basically as without even a junior high education, pretty much raised me on her own. And, um, and it was unique for me because, you know, in order for her to do that, she had to work a lot of hours and double shifts. And, and then when she wasn't working, she was trying to, uh, have some type of normal life. And so she was very social and she, uh, kind of developed an alcohol addiction and she would party a lot and stuff like that. And, and in, in some ways I ended up sort of raising myself and, um, yeah. uh, you know, for better or for worse, I did some things good and a lot of things bad, but that's, that was my unique situation is, uh, kind of growing up with my mom. Um, and that was, it, it was just me and mom. I mean, my grandparents were sort of in the picture every once in a while, but, uh, Mostly it was just mom and I, and and mostly it was just me. So I was I was alone quite a bit um, during during those years. So, um, and you you share this inst- interesting um, scene right at the beginning of your book of an experience, an early experience you have and you recall with your mom at at church. Now, given given the unique circumstances of her life and your life to that point, I think what she exclaimed was quite. Um, Seems quite appropriate, but uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about that that early experience that yeah. you remember of being in church with your mom? Yeah, I, my memories are very fuzzy. Um, my mom sort of filled in some of the details of it, but you know, my grandma she was a regular watcher of TV evangelists. I mean, if you can think of the the hokiest sort of like lamest TV evangelist, my grandma <laughs> loved them, and and she would she was the like if you ever wonder who sends these people money, that was my grandma. And so given that my mom had this child out of wedlock at such a young age and was starting this promiscuous life at such a young age, my grandma thought, well, what she needs is God. And, um, and so when I was five years old, my first church experience was going to this church that my grandma had recommended to my mom. And, um, and it was this mega church. I mean, it was huge. I mean, there's Mm. a thousand people in there and, and I wasn't really paying attention. I was too young, you know, to really know what was going on. But just all of a sudden, this guy's up on the stage talking, and my mom stands up and she says, "That's a bunch of bullshit," mm. <laughs> and grabs me by the wrist and drags me out. And like everybody turns and looks at us as of we're kind of going out, you know. As she just kind of hollered this, and um, it turns out I have no idea what this guy was, how he was using this, but he was preaching the sermon on Lot and his daughters, and. And here's this story from the Old Testament about this incredibly inappropriate sexual relationship between a father and her and his daughters. And and my mom, being at this time, 
not even legal drinking age yet and already burdened so much with this inappropriate sexual kind of situation that she was in and also kind of, you know, growing up in a family with a lot of other inappropriate sexual stuff. And then to have this preacher say that this is all part of God's plan and this Bible, Mm. you know, this God's story. And, and she rightfully just said this, God does not endorse this. And and she said, that's just a bunch of BS. And she left. And, and unfortunately she thought that that's what God was all about. And God was okay with all of this stuff. And, and um, she didn't really come back to God for a long time uh, uh, after that. So um, that was my first church experience. And um, my next church experience wasn't until 10 years later in junior high. And that's where I sort of uh, found God on my own and in my own context. So. Yeah. So here you are today. We're sitting down together again. I've, I've shared your bio already with people. Oftentimes when I hear stories of people that have had the kind of childhood that you've had, they don't always, and I would say they don't frequently turn out with the same sort of story that you have at this point in your life. So you had this probably very early on negative experience at church. We fast forward to your teenage years, and there was some pretty important experiences in your teenage years related to the church that were pretty crucial to your development. And again, it's really common to hear it's really common to hear stories of people who have these terrible traumatic experiences in the church. I think that's right. really common. You've got, and this isn't to speak disparagingly of this movement, because I understand where people come from, this ex-evangelical, ex-evangelical oh, yeah. movement, and these yeah. stories of people who in their teenage years or whatever had tremendously terrible experiences, and they walk away from the church. But here you are in your teenage years, you're a young man carrying these hurts and this trauma of your own. And and then you actually, as you share in your book, you you found church to be a crucial place of healing and guidance. Why why was that? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, just to speak really quick to the ex-evangelical factor, uh, I don't know if this this first church that I experienced, I don't know. He, he could have been given a really great sermon right. and used right. a lot in his daughters. It's just that my mom it was didn't just, understand that. She had that association. That, right? It was yeah. a trigger for her. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but for me, you know, kind of growing up on my own, um, the, the phrase that I use in the book is, and really the book is not really about me that much. It's like... There's like right. 10 pages of just backstory. But um, but but I kind of viewed myself as sort of like a, a social scientist where I kind of had to figure out life by watching others, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't. And um, my mom and I, we moved a lot. And that meant that I would, you know, halfway through a semester at school, I would suddenly find myself in a new school. And sometimes it was, I just noticed these weird things. Like I would be at school one and I would be like, cool with the popular kids and everything would be great and people would like me. And then like a day later, I'd be at a new school and the popular kids would despise me. And I would kind of not really connect with the popular kids. And it just, I learned the fickleness of, of personality at this very young age because of this. And I've, I've spoken with kids of uh, military families who have shared the Mm -hmm. same experience that this, you know, they go from one place to another and their total, their social effectiveness totally changes. And, um, and so I learned early on that that personality is sort of fickle, and in the process of that, I kind of learned how to manipulate it mm. and to kind of manipulate my personality, to manipulate others to kind of get what I want. The classic chameleon, right? Oh, yeah, ch- chameleon, and basically I went from being a, a social scientist to being a sociopath is what it was, and even to the extent that, you know, I, I sort of 
I reveled in outsmarting the authorities and duping the system. And uh, even when I got jobs at Burger King and at this bowling alley, I ended up stealing money. And even though I didn't really need the money, it was just like outsmarting the system. And um, and so I had become basically a sociopath. And uh, and it was there was just like this fickleness and this. But with that, there was also this meaninglessness. And you've uh, you've talked a lot about the importance of meaning, and that's exactly the situation that I was in, is that I I got really good at getting what I wanted, but it was absolutely meaningless, and there was no integrity there. There was no basis for it. It was just this big, dumb show. And you as, didn't have uh, like anybody, a narrative framework nah. to, to give your life a meaning and purpose besides just the base animal instincts, right? Of survival, uh, well, social acceptance. You know, I, I really latched onto popular media and I was a comic book guy and mm. I really liked Batman. Oh, and, me too. You know, yeah. Me too. And, and uh, you know, I, I really liked the movie Fletch. And, and Fletch is about this uh, investigative reporter. And in order for him to get the clues that he needs and get the story, he has to pretend to be something else all the time. So in this movie, he plays like 15 different characters. And, and that's sort of like fed into this sociopathic part of me that's like just pretend, learning how to be whatever the other person needs me to be in order for me to get what I want. And, uh, but then, you know, I, I started going to this youth group at this church um, and... I went and I listened and I ended up learning a lot about kind of what this narrative of the Bible is and this this idea that maybe it is better to do the right thing even if I don't get the outcome that I want. And maybe there's something more important than getting what I want and and that is being who God wants me to be. So that is um, a strange idea. It is. Absolutely. It had to be so foreign. And this is so hard for me to relate to because I always grew up in the church. My my family background is, I think God was, you know, tremendously positive. Um, both my parents were in my life. They were really active in church, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm always fascinated by when people get into at least, you know, their teenage years where that prefrontal cortex has started to develop yeah. and they're able to ask these questions about the world and reality and somebody introduces to them this Christian story. Uh, it had to have felt so foreign in some oh, regard. Totally. Like, why in the world would yeah. I live in this self-emptying, sacrificial way for the sake of others? Yeah. Well, and back then, I didn't even understand the self-sacrificial love stuff. Right. And I just understood this idea of God and Jesus and, and that there was teaching in the Bible and there was truth in the Bible and that God, at that time, God had this plan for my life and he wanted me to be part of his kingdom and um, and that there was a point to everything. There was a meaning, there was a, a point to my life. It wasn't just about me. It was how I fit into something bigger. And and I, early on, man, I, man, I was an existentialist like early on. I'm like, I questioned things like, what is the point of life? And I remember I sent my cousin Michelle, uh, step-cousin Michelle, uh, in a letter when I was 17 or 18, just kind of outlining why everything is meaningless. And, and I just tried to, I tried to pick mm. everything. I looked at money and I said, okay, uh, getting money, will that satisfy anything? And I just, you go and you, okay, well, what can I do with money? Well, I can buy this, you know, maybe it's a, a nice motorcycle, but I know people with motorcycles and they're not happy. And, or maybe it's a mansion. I know people with mansions and they've committed suicide. Uh, you know, and no matter what yeah. I did that I could do with money, there was nothing there that was a guarantee to satisfy me. And then sex, it's like, well, yeah, you have an orgasm, but then that's it. Then it's over. And then you just wait for the next one. I mean, that's sort of like, 
Sisyphus with the rock. I mean, it's Definitely. just, you know, okay, well, now you just got to wait for the next orgasm. And so sex wasn't really. And so I just felt like there's just, there's a whole lot of emptiness. No matter what good thing I picked, maybe it's food, um, you know, that just leads to diabetes. I mean, whatever, whatever it was, there was just uh, everything was meaningless. And, and, but finding this idea of God uh, brought a lot of meaning. And um, it wasn't easy because, you know, the church, um, they were very pietist. And so a lot of my questions, like how, how could Jesus be God and a, a person? And how do you make sense of the Trinity? They didn't have really an, any interest in answering those questions. And yeah. What is pietism? Those, you know, yeah. So, you... uh, and I don't even, I haven't really studied it. This yeah. is just the term I've yes. heard. And so, but I'll just talk about this church is that they really valued, uh, faith as a leap. And so that reason a lot of times is an enemy to faith. Uh, you know, if you want like a, it's a very Kierkegaardian sort of thing. If you want good faith should be passionate and reason sort of uh, debilitates passion. Mm -hmm. And so it's better if it's more absurd. It's mm -hmm. better if, if you don't understand it. And it's better if you just jump into the mystery of God. And, um, and that seemed to work for a lot of people there. It did not work for me that mm -hmm. I needed... Because I, I, if there's meaning here, then it has to be somehow verifiable. There has to be some type of credibility to it. Otherwise, there's no reason for me to jump into this versus jump into Buddhism or whatever. Um, so, well, so you still had these these questions that weren't necessarily being answered tremendously well in the the story. You also had people in your life that were expressing to you, your value, right? I mean, that was a significant part of why well, church was such yeah, a healing experience. Absolutely. In fact, you know, the the biggest problem that I had at the time, and it's been sort of my core theological issue that I've struggled with is, you know, what is human nature and what, you know, are we fundamentally good or fundamentally bad? And and part, partly why this has been so core is because this was the big dilemma that I faced uh, when I went into this church is like, if I'm, if I'm a social scientist and I'm trying to figure out how to live and how to grow up, I run into these two camps of belief that are exactly opposite of one another. And there's smart people in both camps. And one camp says that we are fundamentally bad because of sin, we are depraved, we can't do anything good on our own. Anytime it looks like we're doing something good on our own, it's only because we have some sinful motive that's motivating it. And uh, the only time that we can do anything good is if God sort of domineers in our life and does it for us. Um, and so there's the, that's what my church believed. And... Um, uh, and then my school at the time really believed the opposite, which was that, you know, people are fundamentally good, you're special, you're wonderful. Um, and so I, I kind of had these, I was being pulled in these two different directions. Um, but my church, the, the funny thing was, is that even though they really believed in this, this total depraved sort of sense of the self, man, they treated me great. They treated me like I was a special child of God, that I was loved. It was the first time that I felt like I was in a community where I was important and I was loved and, um, and everybody in this community, they all had good families. And I hadn't seen like how good families operate. And so it was my first exposure to how healthy families work. And, um, and so despite this view of the self, it just seemed like they were living differently than that, even though they proclaimed this view of the self. And so, um, and, and so it was, it was a tough thing for me. Like, how, how do I make sense of that? Like, um, and they didn't have an answer. So I, I think it's good for people to hear that, that are, like work in, in our in current church contexts, because, and you talk about, I want to unpack this here a little bit, but you, 
you 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 write about these two ditches that you call the the ditch of smallness and the ditch of bigness, which I just love. I love those terms because <laughs> I probably would have made it far more complicated. <laughs> Your writing is so good. Oh, it's good. like you know, I, it's it's so accessible to people. I would have probably given it some you know six syllable <laughs> made up. Hey, Greek there's value up. in that too. So, <laughs> but no, the, the, it's great. It's a great terminology. But I think it brings up one of the practical realities is that we're not always attentive to the to the kinds of people the diverse places people in our church communities are coming from and to think of a young man in your position who had been probably dealing with worthlessness to hear a message that you don't have any worth at all whatsoever may have been helpful it may have seemed like it would have been helpful to someone that was really really prideful right mm-hmm. you almost see even Jesus in the gospels interact with people in very different ways oh yeah you know to the pharisees he's very very challenging religious leaders and then there's other times even like with a centurion or a tax collector he's not like that yeah like he invites himself over to Zacchaeus's house yeah. um Zacchaeus is not like marginalized Right, Especially right. in any sort of you know modern way that that's used in sort of like a like a, a Marxist economic framework, right? And yet, and yet to the lepers and to the poor and to the people like the woman with the issue of blood, he gives this immense dignity to, yeah. and he even celebrates people too. And so. I think it's interesting for people to just even one practical takeaway from your story for people that work or serve in church context is to go, boy, we need to be really, really attentive to how the messages that we think are for everybody in the room might impact a small thinking about your mom, for example, right? right? I mean, that poor pastor, he may have only just been unpacking a text. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's really good. So you've got this tremendously positive church experience that has a bit of um, I'll just call it like theological psychology here. That's that's common to many people's church experiences, which, as you've already mentioned already, was pretty co- col- uh, pretty counter to the larger cultural psychology of the early '90s. Yeah. Can you talk about a little bit more about these two ditches, the ditches mm-hmm. that you experienced between that sort of theological psychology, which you call the, the the ditch of smallness, and the other ditch that you experienced, mm-hmm. which was really popular in the early 90s, and it still is fashionable today. Yeah. I actually see it kind of getting some revived airplay in certain theological circles, too. Mm-hmm. This this ditch of bigness, this, this uh, you know, I think of the Lego, the song from the Lego movie that my kids have watched a million times, Everything is Awesome. Oh, you know, <laughs> everything is awesome. <laughs> So can you talk a little bit about those those two ditches that you experienced, one in your church and what I think a lot of people that have spent time in church settings experience and this other the other ditch of this sort of this this ditch of bigness yeah. that we yeah. experience in so much of psychology. Absolutely. I think um for the ditch of smallness, that's usually found in church settings and religious settings and um and it's the the foundation of the the view is that it's not just in church though, but yeah. the, the foundation of the view is that people are fundamentally bad. There's nothing like virtuous in them at all. Um everything virtuous that they do is accidental. It's not it's not part of their nature. It's just, it, it happens first. I mean, Freud was, you, you could call Freud in the ditch of smallness. I mean, he thought that, you know, if it wasn't for society 
giving us constraints, we would all be, you know, in violent orgies all the time. Right. Just... I mean, you could even say guys like there's a lot of the neo-atheists, you know, the, the new school, the new atheists, a guy like Richard Dawkins, who just thinks everything, there is no genuinely altruistic behavior, right? right. Everything is motivated by selfish intentions. So sure. you're right. It isn't just in the church. Yeah. But, but it gets, it gets uh, the most fashionable airplay in the church and it gets very dramatized in the church about just how depraved we are and how horrible we are. And, and in that perspective, the enemy is pride because pride is a feeling of that you're pretty good. And so pride is the ultimate enemy because our reality is that we're fundamentally bad. So, so that, make, that, that makes pride the, the nemesis. The Ditch of Bigness says the exact opposite. It says that, no, 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 we are fundamentally good. Um, it's not pride that's the enemy. It's shame that's the enemy. And what's really curious about these perspectives um, is that they end up leading to each other's nemesis. The ditch of smallness, When you, the more you pursue the ditch of smallness and the more you kind of embrace this idea that you are terrible, that's by definition shame. Um, and then the ditch of bigness, the more you kind of puff yourself up and try to believe that you're great, that will eventually lead to arrogance. And, and so that's why these two perspectives have been at each other for so many, you know, I would say even back in the ancient Greeks. Right, right. This uh, you know, Manichaeanism and yes. so forth, you know. Um, and so those were the two perspectives and, uh, in the ditch of bigness, you know, that sort of plays itself out in the last hundred years in the self-esteem movement and the, uh, positive thinking movement are sort of the, the two, the double-headed monster of the ditch of bigness right, right now. So. Well, what did those, what did those look like for you? What were some examples of how you well, saw that in your, yeah. your, your life, especially yeah. as you said, this is really, really became popular mainstream psychology in yeah. the early nineties. Uh, you know, I, I'm 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 trying to balance how detailed I should be on this. Yeah. But, uh, I'll just give you a couple quick examples. Um, and again, th there's good reasons why people ended up in the ditch of bigness, and there's a lot of r smart people in this perspective, um, even though I think that they have a fundamental philosophical flaw. But like even as a kid in, in junior high, going into high school, uh, the one that just really pops in my head is there was a picture of a Minnesota Viking, and I, I don't remember who it was, <laughs> but it was this big poster in the school hall, and he's pointing out, and he says, you are special. And I mean, even then, I mean, even then, as just like a dumb kid, I knew that, well, he doesn't know me. He doesn't know if I'm special. And, and it was obvious that they just implied that everybody was special. But even then, I knew that, well, if everybody's special, then nobody is. I mean, it just doesn't mean The math anything. doesn't work. It doesn't right? work. It doesn't work. But like, you know, underneath that is this idea that there's a, there's a power in the positive thought. Uh, even if even if you might not be special now, that's only because you've had some problem that has sabotaged your specialness. And the way to get back at that is through positive thinking and through self-esteem exercises. And really, this goes back to um, in this kind of phase of the ditch of bigness uh, in America, at least, it really kind of blossomed out of uh, humanistic psychology. Uh, you know, so people like Carl Rogers, for instance, who who said that you know inside each of us we have this this incredible power of self development, and we have a unique self in there that's just like billowing and pushing and working to try to you know create itself. But the problem is is that we sabotage that powerful, unique self by giving into other people's authority. And so, you know, for instance, like a, if you imagine like a little toddler at the table who is, uh, has this urge to slather mashed potatoes on her face, uh, 
but she decides not to because she doesn't want to make mom upset. She has given away a little piece of authority to her mom there. What she wanted to do, what this unique power inside of her, this urge that she has been given, what that was pushing her to do was to slather the mashed potatoes on her. Now, what good would that have led to? Probably nothing, but at least she would have experienced it and she would have been able to uh, you know, work off of that kind of inner force and, and stayed in tune with that inner force. Uh, but instead, she just suffocated it by giving in to, to mom. And so what Roger said is that what we need to do is we need to try to get back in touch with that inner voice that that those set of, or the inner child as some other people have called it um and he called that self-esteem it's like getting oxygen down there well culture took that idea and just kind of bastardized it into just love yourself you know and it sort of evolved into this uh if you're happy with yourself or if you like yourself that's good and and that led into this this uh kind of thinking that you know if and it's it sounds like so intuitive if you like yourself your life is going to be better. That just sounds really good. And that if you're, if everybody in your community likes themselves, that community will be better. And if the world, if everybody in the world liked themselves, the world would be better and all of our problems would go away. Uh, and it sounds so good. And that's sort of like that intuitive thinking just led to just huge investments in trying to boost the self-esteem of students and, uh, which led to grade inflation and all sorts of stuff like that. And basically, uh, dumb kids who really like themselves is what it what it led to. Um, but then what we found out is that none of that is true. Self-esteem doesn't lead to improved grades. It doesn't lead to any of these good uh, qualities. And, and if anything, it sabotages a lot of these outcomes that we want. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, because I, I, when I hear that, there's a, there's a part of me that goes, and I think about people that heard this message that they were worthless, that they were hated by God. You know, I remember there's a viral video of a pretty popular pastor a few yeah. years ago who, who's not had a fall from grace and who's saying, God actually hates you. Right, right. You know, and people are like, that's the good news, brother, yeah, right, right. <laughs> that God actually hates you, actively hates you, and you only had value if you became a Christian because now God saw Jesus instead of you. That's right. The self-esteem and positive thinking movement can actually seem pretty appealing. I mean, that that yeah. what you just said about, well, if I just think more highly of myself and my neighbors do, and I learn to love myself, and th that seems like, a, a for a lot of people, a lot better place yeah. to be in. But you write about, and you bring this up in your book, that there, there's actually some pretty solid, solid scientific evidence, besides the theological reasons why we might have a disagreement with that. There's some pretty solid scientific evidence that these movements actually haven't been helpful, right? Right, that's right, yeah. Well, I, I think uh, there's so much of it. In fact, uh, uh, the best place to go to find out more about this, his name is Baumeister, B-A-U-M-E-I-S-T-E-R, and he did just this groundbreaking research in 2002, 2003, where they analyzed you know, a couple hundred thousand research studies on self-esteem to see basically the question that he was trying to answer for this government investment program was that, is it worthwhile to invest in self-esteem programs? And so they analyzed all of this data and they concluded that they don't see any discernible benefit to investing in self-esteem. Wow. In fact, what they found was that um, it actually deteriorated outcomes. And if you think about it, uh, in, in particular, it led to worse 
grade performance, um, and it led to more experimentation with drugs and premarital sex. Uh, and if you think about it, that makes sense, because if you really believe that you are great just the way you are, then why do I need to work hard on trigonometry? You know, it just, it, 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 and so that it's, that's how it backfired. Or if I'm just wonderful and I'm so great, there's this feeling of invulnerability and there's this more openness to taking risks because I'm just awesome, you know, and there's, and that kind of feeds into our natural adolescent feelings of invulnerability. And it just sort of like, it's that's like this invulnerability. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So that's what they found is that they found that it, no, this actually makes things worse in, in most cases. So. I think one of the common pictures people have is that there's this sort of vertical tug of war game happening between pride and humility. And in order for one to either win the battle against pride, for example, like there's clearly some problems that the self-esteem movement fed into this pride thing, which we don't need any help with in some regard, right? Especially for teenagers or anybody. I mean, it doesn't get any better when you're an adult the way you think about it. But it fed into this thing, and in order for somebody to to win the war against pride, they they must constantly do this kind of, again, it's like a vertical tug-of-war game. They have to keep making less and less of themselves until they see themselves as utterly nothing. And and then in a weird sense, you say, well, you'd win when you get to that point, but you never get to that point, because if you thought that you won at it, you're still prideful, right? But how might that both be theologically unwarranted and psychologically destructive? Yeah. Well, um, I think really when I studied humility, that's the definition of humility that I found all over in the Christian uh, literature is this idea that humility is the opposite of pride. And that leads to these catch-22s because if pride is thinking positive about yourself and being big and, and, you know, bluster – Humility must be the opposite of that, which is as small about yourself and as anti-self as possible and uh, as little blusterous, but more sobriety about the self. And and that's why you see these these great Christian thinkers who are wrapped up in this trap where they, they're almost like they're trying to one down each other, where they're trying to prove that they view themselves more despicable than anybody else. And this is where you get worm theology. And this is where you get, I am nothing but, you know, pulsating ulcers and I am a burp trapped in some fool's throat and, you know, stuff like that where they're just trying to like outdo each other for how despicable they can portray the self. And, um, and, and that's, you know, that fits really nicely with certain theologies about sin. If you also believe you're totally depraved and there's nothing good in you, man, this view of humility fits, you know, perfectly in with that. Um, and if, if that's what humans are, is that they're just, there's nothing good in them and they're totally depraved. Wow. That's wonderful. But the problem with that is theologically, um, is that, there has to be a floor to how low we view the self because it, the Bible tells us that we're loved by God. And so at the very least, we have to at least be lovable. And and so there's a baseline there that you can't get below lovable. <laughs> and and there has to be something lovable about you. And this is why, you know, the Bible says that God loved us while we were still while we were sinners. Still yet sinners. Yeah, yeah. So even while we were at our worst, he still had this unsurpassable love for us. So there must be something in us that is lovable. And so you can't go too far. And then the second reason that I throw out is you know, Jesus, Hebrews tells us that Jesus became fully one of us. And so anything that you say about humans' fundamental nature, you also have to say about Jesus. And to say that Jesus was a you know, despicable, pulsating ulcer. We can't even think to say that, you know, and yet that's what this view leads us to. So 
Um, and that, so there must be something flawed with this view of humility um, that because uh, uh, it, it shouldn't lead us to these kinds of traps. And you're right. You know, you have people like even C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, he, he said that as soon as you start to think that you're humble, you've ruined your humility. Right, right. You know, and, and that's because he's thinking out of this kind of broken view of humility as humility is the opposite of, of pride. Um, but what I found in Matthew 23 is this, uh, this idea that that humility is not just the opposite of pride in this up-down sort of way. It's sort of the opposite of, of both pride and shame because the actual pure opposite of, of pride is shame, not humility. And this is why when people put humility as the opposite of pride, it ends up leading to shame. And that's why you see so much shame dysfunction in these churches because they're practically chasing it. They, it's almost like they want it. Uh, if shame is a feeling of just being despisable and horrible— Amen. That's that's also humility. I mean, it, it, so it's like this terribly dysfunctional spiritual pursuit. Uh, but Jesus in Matthew twenty three, I think, um, makes it pretty clear that uh, yeah, pride is bad. He he chastises the Pharisees for thinking that they're better than others, and he tells his disciples, "Don't let it, anybody call you rabbi. Don't let anybody put you above them." But then he says, also, don't call anybody on earth father or teacher. Uh, so that is, don't put anybody above you either. So even though Jesus says, yeah pride is bad, like the ditch of smallness says, the opposite of pride is also bad. So the ditch of smallness has to be wrong. Because if the opposite of pride is bad, then the opposite of pride can't be humility. That just wouldn't make any sense. Uh, and so I think Jesus really kind of overthrows this view of humility in Matthew 23. Um, and and the, the model that he creates, I think, makes just a ton more sense. Uh, shame is the opposite of, of pride. Humility is the opposite of both shame and pride. Um, and the and, uh, the best analogy that I've I've found for this is James Kellenberger. He said that if you think of pacifism, you could think of pacifism as the opposite of winning a war, and you can also think of pacifism as the opposite of losing a war. But you wouldn't say that pacifism was like a balance between winning a war and no, losing a war. Wow. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's it, opposite of war itself. It's an entirely different category, It's just a right? different thing altogether. And the more wow. pacifist you become, the less likely you are to be engaged in war at all. Whether it's winning a war or losing a war, uh, you're going to be—the more you get into pacifism, the less violence you're going to have totally. And so the same thing is true with humility. The more humble you become, the less arrogant or shameful you should be. Uh, you worked in— You've worked in crisis mental health profession for 20 years. Yeah. You share some stories about, and again, your book isn't just a compilation of stories, right. but there's some helpful stories in there. Mm. You share some stories about even experiences going to like recovery group meetings with your mom and and seeing firsthand maybe some of the, the psychological, you've laid out a little bit of the, mm -hmm. the theological reasons why you believe that humility should be considered a third way and why this 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 ditch of smallness, this this thinking that I have to win this vertical tug of war against pride is really, really destructive. But how, how do you see that? Um, not that we can clearly differentiate between the theological and the psychological. I think they're right. intertwined. It's kind of the point. Mm -hmm. I think a, a massive point of your book, too. Um, but how about... If you were to say purely from a psychological psychological perspective, how have you seen this sort of idea that we have to win this game of tug of war vertically against pride by uh, defeating it with just constantly making less of ourselves? How have right. you seen the psychological destruction of that in your line of work and experiences? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, there's so many examples Um 
I think it could work in both ways. I mean, the you know the the ditch of bigness also can disrupt uh, psychological, a, th- a therapeutic yes, rapport yeah. and a therapeutic yeah. pursuit. But um, the ditch of smallness, in particular. Ultimately, what I would say is that the ditch of smallness eventually leads to shame. The ditch of bigness eventually leads to arrogance. Um, arrogance and shame, when you look at the literature on anything, whether it's addiction, uh, depression, procrastination, uh, uh, academic effectiveness, arrogance and shame are like dysfunction steroids. They if it, they make your addiction stickier. They make your depression darker. Um, and, and, and so that's the first thing is that the more you, you try to go against pride, the more you're going to end up in shame and the more you're going to amplify, um, whatever dysfunction that you're struggling with. Um, you know, that's, that's a given. I mean, I think the research is pretty unanimous on that. I have personal kind of, um, suspicions about shame as it relates to a lot of addiction models. A lot of addiction models, I think, ends up reinforcing the ditch of smallness. Um, The ditch of smallness basically says that you are bad and you are incapable of anything good. And so there's there's a fundamental sense of can't there. There's this this loud kind of, it's almost like a banner that they carry into war. I can't, I can't, I can't. And a lot of uh, addiction models, and they've changed a lot over the last 15 years or so, but for a long time, addiction models started off with, I can't. And they started off with this proud declaration of powerlessness. And so people in the ditch of smallness were oftentimes huge advocates for these types of 12-step programs that started off with, you know, admitting that you're powerless. Um, and which is is you know it's true if a person is having an addiction they are powerless uh, to that. That seems different than saying I can't though well, too, right? That's where it gets fuzzy. Is, yeah. Is, okay. Uh, say say some more about yeah, that. Well, that's where it gets fuzzy. Where like you have um, you could have one person who is you know they've just lost control over their drinking and they need to recover from this uh, dependency on this alcohol. And it's a biological dependency at that point where they've conditioned their brain to, it, it hurts them when they can't have it. And so in the sense, they can't not drink because they hurt when they don't. Um, now that's, that's an episodic sort of thing. It could be an episodic sort of mm. thing. And you could look at that person and say, that person is powerless to alcohol. Um, and that's true. But that's different than that saying that person now is forever powerless to alcohol. Mm. And that's where the ditch of smallness in in this type of therapy can affect it where, um, you know, you will never ever have control over this again. And um, and that's just the, the research doesn't back that up because we see people who do uh, go through life changes who end up getting control over their alcohol consumption. In fact, in Canada, uh, you know, in, in America, we, we uh, have historically been all about abstinence. Like you cannot even have a drop because as soon as you have a drop, you've fallen off the wagon is the language that we use. But in Europe and Canada, they don't have that standard. Uh, in, in, in drug rehabilitation and other parts of the world, um, if, if your drinking isn't causing problems at home and it isn't causing problems at work and you're able to live how you want to live, you're fine. You're good. And so, but that's, that's that, that uh, attitude of, the, you know, you have to accept this kind of totalitarian sort of view of the self that can kind of get in the way of that. But hmm. um, yeah, uh, so, man, I could go all over the place with that. So I don't, I don't know where else you want me to go with that. But. No, no, I think, I think it would be... <clears throat> I just encourage people when they do pick up your book, you, you, you share some stories about even just sitting in like, AA, well, well, I don't know if you specifically named it as AA meetings, but yeah. meetings with your own mother and hearing. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's These the good thing. Experiences. That, yeah. I think in, when I talked about those in the book, what I liked about the ditch of smallness is that there was this sense in which if, if you believe that we're all depraved and incapable of anything good and somebody comes in and they confesses something that they're powerless to or they confess some type of sin, there's this sense in which that person now is being real and they're being like true and and it doesn't matter what you confess when you're around people in the ditch of smallness because it's almost like they celebrate those flaws because, man, you're being real. Yeah. Whereas if you were to come in and proclaim some type of strength or asset that you have or something that you're good at, they would kind of look at you with distrust, like you're not being real. And and so that's where there's like this weird sort of like, it's good that they're so accepting, but it's it's not really, they're not really accepting the person. They're accepting the declaration of powerlessness, and and they're accepting this philosophical statement that um, I am flawed, and and because that that reinforces this idea that we're all depraved and terrible or whatever, um, and so it, yeah, that's that's what I would say. Um, I mean, Jesus, because Jesus models acceptance also. I mean, he accepts people no matter what, um, but he doesn't. You know, it's not like. Because Jesus accepts a person who has sinned, it's not like there isn't anything good about them also. Mm. You know, I mean, people are both good and bad. We have all sorts of, of yeah, I think you bring that you bring that up and it it gets to what I've observed as these ideological ditches and what's behind them. what what seems to be behind these ideological ditches is a a different fundamental presupposition about the very nature of human beings, right? Yeah. On the one hand, you've got those like philosopher Thomas Hobbes who, who, who saw humans as fundamentally evil and said life is nasty, brutish, and short, and what you need to have is a, a leviathan. You need to have a strong leader because without him, you know, humanity would descend into total chaos. So what you need is you need to have fear of this leviathan, which would keep you in check. I think there's a lot of theology there, of people's experiences and perceptions of God there too, where people often see God as the Leviathan, and he's like the necessary fear to keep their depravity in check. So you've got that sort of Hobbesian view. Then you'd also have guys like, you know, if we're going to stick with philosophy, philosophers for a second, you've got guys like like John Locke that that seem to have seen human nature as, as fundamentally good. You tell this story in your book about a young man named Jay Austin, and I think it really highlights the problem with answering this question about human nature with simple answers. Could you could you share a bit about that story and what you thought that that story illustrates about this challenge in identifying what is the fundamental um, nature of humanity? Yeah, uh, so Jay Austin, um, I want to get his exact quote here, so I'm going to find it here. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, and you can look this guy up on Instagram. I mean, this guy's like a hero of mine. I mean, he's, it's amazing. I mean, he was working this office job, and he um, just decided, you know, there's more to life than just work and making money, and he wanted to go explore the world. And I think he told his girlfriend, there's, there's magic out there, he said. And so he talked his girlfriend into quitting her job, and they went on this huge year-long uh, journey from, like, South Africa all the way up to, I think they were in Russia. And they were just everywhere, you know, on bike and by cab and just, like, just roughing it the whole way, you know. And and, uh, and they meet just, and, and you could see this on Instagram, their Instagram page. They meet all of these just amazing people who take them in, who help them 
them. And a couple times, you know, like they had their, their tire blow out and somebody like, you know, um, rigged this device to fix a problem with the bicycle, you know, just like in his own shop and just stuff like that where the people are just pouring themselves out and they're meeting all these wonderful people. And you look at that and it's really easy to say humans are good, you know, and he, and they had so many good examples of that. Um, and, and so this is what he, he said in one of his posts, he said, um, uh, people, the narrative goes are not to be trusted. People are bad. People are evil. I don't buy it. Evil is a make-believe concept we've invented to deal with the complexities of human beings. By and large, humans are kind, self-interested sometimes, myopic sometimes, but kind, generous and wonderful and kind. And so he kind of ended up with this this view that evil is make-believe. There are no evil people. And because people are fundamentally good and, um, and you just have to understand them. And so a short time after this, I mean, literally days after writing this, um, this group of wannabe ISIS terrorists uh, ran them over and um, they were still alive. And so they backed over them again and they posted pictures with ISIS flags and stuff like that, you know. And, um, and so that's sort of like this. You can believe that humans are good fundamentally, but the fact is, is that there are some bad people out there. And I think what what the scriptures teach um, is that humans are neither fundamentally good or fundamentally bad. What we are fundamentally is loved. We're fundamentally loved. And this is why the Old Testament has this language of choice that that God puts a choice in our lap. Goodness and badness is sort of this heavy opportunity that lays before us. I have placed before you fire and water, life and death, blessings and curses. Um, That's the language that the Bible has. And so we're fundamentally loved and we have the potential to become good or bad. But the ditch of smallness ends up thwarting that by making us believe that we have no potential to be good. And the ditch of bigness ends up thwarting that by making us believe that there is no evil. It's a make-believe thing. But the fact is, is that there really is evil people, and and there really are good people, and um, and the ditches end up blinding us to to one or the other, and that's extremely dangerous. Unfortunately for Jay Austin and his girlfriend, it cost them their life. I think. Oh, it's a it's a horrific story. It is. It's so horrible. I, I hate using it just I, not just to make a a point because but this this point is is really important because think about how he lived the way that he chose to be in the world mm-hmm. was informed by the narrative that he believed about reality and about human persons and that led him to a tremendously optimistic view and a lot of great things probably came from oh, that yeah, right totally. From this, this, like I said, he's one of my modern day heroes. I mean, the stuff that he did, it was really cool. And yet, perhaps there was something flawed about his theology. I don't know what sort of religious, if he had any sort of religious tradition or not, but everybody's got a theology. Yeah. The theology he held to perhaps didn't see the capacity for evil and brokenness within people either. And it seems like. The reading of the Christian story acknowledges both, right? That yeah. there is there is something fundamentally broken, though God's disposition towards us is that we are fundamentally loved. You think that's a fair way of 
of putting it. Well, like, what do we do? I think about, you know, the common thing you always heard, I always heard growing up, right, is, let me, let me say a couple things. I, I, I don't think anything of necessarily what we're talking about today has to do with ultimate destiny and salvation, just to be clear. I think, I think one of the things that perhaps we could say with certainty is you can't raise yourself from, from the grave. Right. Right. Um, and I think if you wanted to have, not to make a, this isn't an advertisement, but if you wanted to hear a pretty nuanced discussion about this, you can go to one of my earlier episodes. I interviewed Dr. Matthew J. Thomas, who was a uh, Oxford PhD grad, and he explores uh, the first, the early church's understanding of works of the law and, and, and grace. So you could check out that that episode. But I think oftentimes people that have kind of grown up with this narrative that it maybe goes a little something like this. We are fundamentally hated by God, right? We are born into the world hated by God. And that's that's why we even have to do things like have babies baptized, right? I mean, that's the mm. origins of it. Not, nothing against, I mean, you can baptize babies and or, you know, get them, uh, what do we call it in some other traditions? Um, not blessed. Dedicated. Baby dedicated, dedications. Right? But, you know, historically, the, the reason why that came about was people were concerned about, well, what happens to babies if they weren't baptized? Right. And because perhaps this fundamental disposition that God has towards people is that he actively hates them mm. until they are regenerated. One of the things I always heard uh, about this was to kind of affirm this perspective as well. You don't have to teach a toddler how to steal a cookie. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, what do so, we do with that? Well, what I do with that yeah. is um, I think that there's a lot of there's a there's a there's a, there's evil, and then there's just a lot of like ignorance. You know, I mean, like uh, you know, I actually talk about this. I have a, a series of books called The Training of KX12, and in The Training of KX12, it's 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 basically a modern screw tape letters uh, where there's this demon in hell writing letters to a demon on earth, and he's teaching the demon on earth how to corrupt people. And one of the very examples that I use in there is this boy. He's just like you know four or five years old, and he's really selfish with his toys, and on one sense, he's selfish, but uh, on the other hand, kids have to kind of have a sense of ownership before they can do anything good. You can't be charitable if if you're if it's not yours, if you don't have a sense of ownership. And so there's a certain type of selfishness that's required in order for charity to be real. Um, I can't, I mean, if I grab your wallet and give the guy outside $20 from your wallet, I'm not being charitable. You know, it's got to be mine in order for me to give it away. Good luck finding 20 bucks in my wallet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, and so I think that's the same thing that's true with cookies. It's like, you know, I, 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 or you see this with dogs too. It's just like we, we foster dogs that from puppy mills and, um, and these dogs are not very well trained and they're not responsive to voices like with most dogs you say no and they'll they'll respond but these dogs they don't really know it's just a, it might as well be a bird chirping to them you know and there's just you learn these things where they they go into the kitchen and they jump up and they grab something off the countertop and it's like well yeah it's right th- I have to jump up because it's up so high why are you guys putting this food so high up you know yeah, and and there's their base survival instinct, yeah they're just like right? it's it's just not even it's just like well that's what you do it's right there I gotta go get it and if there's a plate of cookies there and it, man those cookies are good I'm gonna have another one because it was good I mean there's no there's no knowledge that maybe I should limit this that's not even 
it's not even part on their radar screen. Um, and so that you wouldn't really say, see, look, they're depraved. It's like, well, no, they're just, they're learning how to be a living thing in the world. And that's just normal living stuff. You know, that's in order to live in this, this laboratory that is life, you have to learn how to move around. You have to learn how to walk from here to there. You have to learn how to feed yourself. And there's just a lot of stuff that we learn in that process. I mean, what's amazing, all the stuff that kids learn in just a short amount of time. And so I chalk up a lot of that stuff to just learning how to be alive in, in the world. It's um, interesting. It's more, I had really poor, we've talked about this. If you recognize Dan's voice from previous podcasts, Dan was on the other side of a interviewing me for Greg Boyd's apologies and, and, and explanations. So if his voice sounds familiar, that's that's where that's where it's coming from. We had a bit of a conversation a few weeks ago when we did that about how, you know, I had really poor science training um, in in my evangelical circles growing up. And it's only become recent years, let's say over the past decade or so, that I have not had this view of science and faith that they're at odds with each other and gotten, you know, had this almost flat earther conspiratorial view of the sciences. And one of the things that I I think I've, it's been helpful as I've been studying and understanding biology and, 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 and psychology. And I think it might be a framework that could be helpful for people. I wonder what, I'd like to get your thoughts on it. I've often thought about this, this tension as, um, in what we might call the sin nature in theology and certain strands of theology, the sin nature, total depravity is almost like an acknowledgement of our evolutionary appetites, right? And you have these appetites and in, in Darwinian, in the Darwinian, traditional Darwinian perspective, our two dominant appetites are survival and reproduction, yeah. right? And so those primary drives, and when you think about the ways people act in the world, uh, they may they act to survive, they act to be accepted for sexual reproduction. Those are some of our two basis drives. And we can see in the animal kingdom behaviors like you just brought up. This is what made me think of it. You bring a dog up, mm-hmm. right? Whose base instinct is survival. And so they actually, they have this really rudimentary system animals do, their input output system in their brain. They don't have this developed prefrontal cortex like humans do. It's one of the things that sets us apart. In fact, you know, perhaps in one way of interpreting it, 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 it might be one of the ways that we could say we are made in the image of God. It's a way that's very unique from the rest of the animal world. So they have this rudimentary input-output. It goes straight from input, I see cookie, output, I should get cookie, correct? Right. And yet God's given humans this filtering mechanism that it seems like what Christian, not Christians, what seems like humanity needs is they needed instruction— they needed instruction for how to be in the world so that they wouldn't resort to those base instincts. Because we also see in the sciences that animals actually behave in incredibly like altruistic ways too. That is... Especially elephants. I think of elephants all the time. Yeah, well, what, tell, tell me about more well, about elephants. Well, just like with elephants, just the, their sense of community and their bonding. Um, I mean, the, the, they'll... Uh, it, like there's a there's a organization that my wife and I support called the David David Sheldrick Wildlife Foundation and they basically rescue elephants that have been neglected or abused from hunters and you know little babies whose mothers were killed and stuff like that and they raise them uh, in these in these farms but they raise them so that they can reintegrate them in with a pack of elephants and it's amazing because they'll they'll raise these babies and the baby will bond with the human 
um, and it's really hard to get them to bond with the with the pack, you know, and it takes a while. And what they have, and you can watch these videos on the David Sheldrick site, there'll be times when the elephant, like if it's a female, will return with her babies to introduce the babies to the humans because they still have that bond. So they'll travel for miles and miles and miles to show off the babies to the human that, that they bonded with. And just that type of behavior is, um, I, it's, it blows me away. I but just, you also simultaneously would be a fool if you didn't think one of those things wouldn't trample you if you went after one right. of its kids, oh, right? Absolutely, yeah. And that seems to be perhaps maybe, I'm almost just kind of, drafting this idea with you on the fly here. But it almost seems to be that we could learn from like the, the fundamental, um, the fundamental way that all of creation is that we could possibly learn insights about what humans are like, because we are part of creation. And there's, there seems to be this rich Christian theology that creation is fundamentally good and yet fallen. Yeah. And yet when I hear oftentimes this anthropology, this anthropology, this sort of theological anthropology, I hear the reverse about people, that they are fundamentally bad, but they might be redeemable right. at some point. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I agree with like looking at all of nature to understand ourselves because they're, it's all part of the same creator and, and so forth. And part of, part of um, I think that Romans one twenty even is not just about God, you know. It's just that God is obvious in creation, but it's also about humans too. I mean, that's how we learn about ourselves and and um, by understanding nature and, and so forth. But you know, um, I'm not a Calvinist. Uh, I I I think the idea of total depravity and that we're absolutely. Uh, I just think there's a floor that has to be there. Um, I mean, it, it, you look at the. You look at a few things in the Bible that just jump out to me, at least, just how how much God goes through to establish covenant with us and how much he surpasses in order to bond with us and, and acts, you know, tells us that he longs to dwell with us and, and he made us in the hope that we might look for him and reach out to him. Um, and that's just, there's just this longing to be with us. And you look at Jesus when God becomes a human and all the people who are just drawn to Jesus and they just, he had to like, he had to go out into a boat just to get a little time, a space. You know, they were removing roofs because there were so many people, people couldn't get in because so many people wanted to be near him. Hmm. You take a guy who's saying that you're all terrible, depraved, and I guarantee people aren't going to be drawn to that. Mm. And so that's not the message that Jesus was sending in his personhood. That's not what he was teaching. He was teaching something that drew people in, and I think uh, um, it's the same thing that that is the foundation of what humility is. That seems so different than the notion of this God who almost has a sin allergy, Yeah. right? And um, that he... The, one of the common ways it's presented is that he he because he's perfect he can't be in the presence of sin you know it's yeah. like something he just can't do it he can't stand it can't detest right. it and yet we see in the life of Christ the exact opposite but it's nuanced too right because I think that this just seems to be a thing perhaps maybe Americans really struggle with we really like pendulum swings mm-hmm. one way or the other. It's it's as if, and you've just nailed it, right? With the ditch of smallness and the ditch of bigness. It's like some people, even Christians will go, 
you know, almost sort of a theological affirmation of the self-esteem movement. You go, see, Jesus was always with sinners. He was partying with sinners. And it was like, hey, you guys, it's super cool to be sinners. Right. <laughs> I'm yeah. Jesus. I'm just here hanging out with you. And you have that ditch. And then the other side, you have this other ditch where it's like, well, Jesus was always clearing out the temple and saying, woe to you, woe to you. And it's like, well, maybe he did both. Right. You know, maybe maybe these caricatures. I want to talk, um, there was this, this chapter in your book exploring equality, and I know it's not necessarily a central, um, central to the argument that you're making, but I, it just got some things firing in my hmm. brain. I, I found it really interesting. Um, I think, as it appears you do too, that a strong theological case can be made for the inherent equal worth of every human being as image bearers, as people whom Christ died for, right? Yeah, right. Um, I'd say that this conviction is is at the core of historical ethical instruction, and, and probably even our entire legal system and bill of rights wow. is the value of the individual. Now, it hasn't always been properly applied, right. but you think of even things like, um, like the abolition movement, when that actually, when the theological connections were made and people like William Wilberforce, they're like, hang on a second. These people that we've treated as, as slaves are actually equal to us white people right. in the sight of God. They're image bearers whom Christ died for. So there's these theological connections. What, what stood out to me in the, that chapter was how you actually, you make the case for this inherent equality before God, and yet you you defend the necessary reality of hierarchical structures. Yeah. In our political landscape, there's been a significant amount of debate on whether hierarchies necessarily assume and enforce inequality and whether they need to almost sort of be forcefully restructured by, this is the odd part about it to me, some other hierarchical moral force Hmm. to either redistribute material possessions or access to resources, opportunities. And the political discourse, it seems like, again, America has... You got one position or the other. On one side, it's like, yes, there's inequality and there's this danger in hierarchical structures, and that danger is the government, right? right? And so what we need to do is we need to restrict through some other hierarchy that we call the people or democratic process. We need to restrict government from the way that it treats people unequally. And then it seems like on the other side, you have this, no, 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 no. We need government as this hierarchical structure to restrict or to pull out of poverty those who have been oppressed by um, capitalists or oppressed by corporations or oppressed by the masses. How do you think Christians should mm-hmm. navigate that dynamic? And, and tell us a little bit of why you think like these hierarchical structures are just, they're just there. I know some yeah. people feel like, you know, the, the Christian vision, and you even wrote an article about this for Renew yeah. on um, why I think you said, you know, why Jesus, Jesus isn't, a isn't a socialist, which some people just were like, well, here's here's another capitalist. And that <laughs> right. wasn't what you were arguing either. Because he's not a capitalist either. He's not a capitalist right. either. But yeah. there's some people that are like, oh, man. all hierarchies, yeah. inequality is built into right. that thing. So. Right. Well, let me let me first say a couple of caveats. Is yeah. Political stuff is not my specialty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the first thing. Uh, there are smarter people than I working on on that type of, of, of stuff. The second thing is, um, you know, hierarchy. All oppression emerges out of hierarchies. So hierarchies can be very dangerous. And um, in fact, 
you know, oppression, the fact, the reality of oppression shows how hierarchies can be dangerous. So, but they're not inherently dangerous is, is my only point. Um, because, and, and it really comes back to the power of what this equality is. Um, and what I say is that we are unsurpassably equal. And, and what I mean by that is that that equality is based on something. It's based on the fact that God loves us each with an unsurpassable love. Mathematically, what that means is that if God loves me with an unsurpassable love, and if he loves you with an unsurpassable love, then he can't love Margot more than us because then his love for you and me would have been surpassable. Um, and we see this unsurpassable love uh, in, in you know, all over the place, but I, I particularly like how uh, the Apostle Paul um, outlines it in 2 Corinthians where he says that Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, Christ became our sin. Now, if God is perfectly holy and sin is the opposite of per being perfectly holy, that means that God became his perfect opposite in order to, uh, for, because of his love for us. And so he couldn't have paid more for us. He couldn't have shown more love for us than becoming the antithesis of himself. Um, and if that's true for each of us, then that means that we must be unsurpassably equal, which also means that if somebody has some responsibility in the community, it doesn't say anything about me. Uh, and that's, you have to embrace that profound security that's latent in that equality. Um, and the way I, I put it is that, you know, I, I imagine some jobs in, in our community and, um, like, the, there are people who specialize in what happens with my poop when I flush the toilet, you know? Thankfully, right? Yeah. Amen. I mean, that's great because I don't want that responsibility. I don't want anything to do with that. I just, I just, I love indoor toilets. I mean, it's just the best thing ever. <laughs> and, um, and the fact that there are people who are willing to do that and to orchestrate all of that they need authority to make decisions, and I say, great, give them that authority. And and that's true of, of all sorts of things. I mean, there's so many roles that are needed in society, and this is why the Apostle Paul talking about the body of Christ, saying that, look, we, we can't all be the eye. Some people have to be the hand, and the eye can't tell the hand what to do. I mean, the hand has to be responsible for whatever hands do. And But we're all part of the body of Christ, and we're all, all unsurpassably equal. And uh, and so I think that our our justified reactiveness to the power and the oppression built in hierarchy, that's justified. And we need to, uh, I think most of our work as Christians in the world is being paranoid about oppression in, in hierarchies. But that doesn't mean that we should find ways to overthrow hierarchies. I think that that's a mistake. It's a, it's a bad investment of our of our spiritual lives. Seems to that we would conf there's a conflation of our equality in our essential humanity that God sees us as valuable as image bearers as individuals who Christ died for as even having these unique things about us that he's wild about with the conflation of that sort of equality with equality in like aptitude in all areas right. or in gifts or it's just a it seems to be a, a factual reality an inescapable reality people have different IQ levels right. we have different interests um you know i could never i i don't have the skill set or aptitude right now to do the the things like you've written several books of fiction and as much as i would probably in theory love to do that i have not worked to develop that skill set or that aptitude. And therefore, if I go to a publisher 
And I go, well, here's a book I just wrote up last night, a work of fiction. <laughs> and they go, this is trash. And I go, well, no, I'm equal with right, Dan yeah. Kent in the eyes of my father, <laughs> my <laughs> heavenly father. That, that probably doesn't have much value. And we even see it in church structures, too, which are hierarchical. I mean, there, there seems to be, as you just bring up, there is an inevitability to it, but yet there should probably be this sort of checks and balances system, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the Christian ethical vision acknowledges that there's these differences, that, that we have differences in the body of Christ, and yet in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave yeah. nor free, male nor well, female, right. right? Right. Well, and I think what happens is, um, you know, we, we develop checks and balances that end up nurturing whatever oppressive presuppositions we bring in. And and so we have checks and balances to keep females from preaching, basically. And um and we have so in other words, we justify oppression. Uh and so that's why we always have to keep examining that because um I think that there are no male or females in the church. And so females should be leading churches and preaching and whatever. And that's my opinion. Um and so if there's checks and balances that are keeping that from happening, then those need to be overturned and to looked at more carefully. And this is where it becomes practically difficult, right? Is how how does the Christian theological affirmation, even if it's shared by people, how does it actually look in reality? Because you would simultaneously have people that would go, well no, the the fundamental structure of God's intention for reality is mm-hmm. that you would have males play these specific roles in a society or mm-hmm. institution or hierarchy, and females play the right. other. And then you have another group that goes, no, they can, that's based on aptitude and their own inherent skill set. So this is where Christians would hopefully be able to have charitable dialogue together about these things. And the same thing happens, you know, with politics and political, political perspectives. I, how does the ditch of smallness and the ditch of bigness condition people to be either oppressed or oppressors within our social yeah. hierarchies and uh, institutions? Yeah, definitely. The the ditch of smallness, um, the, the more you grow into this idea that you can't, the more you grow into this idea that you can't do anything good, you're, you're terrible, and you need to think of yourself more soberly, smaller, and the, the smaller, even if... If even thinking about pride is a violation of your humility, that's how despicably small you have to view yourself. That's the criteria is so low and you have to to get better at that, to get more spiritually woke in the ditch of smallness means to view yourself as so small. You get to some point where it becomes absurd to uh, stand up to oppressors. It's like, well, why shouldn't I be treated like a doormat? If I'm really despicable, depraved, unworthy, incapable of anything good, uh, and yet also don't tread on me? I mean, what, why not? Yeah, you can't develop <laughs> self-differentiation. You're right. right, yeah. And so there's this inherent sense in which, um, and, and we see this in, like, you know, this sense of powerlessness that just gets developed in the teaching where, you know, like um, one of the research studies that I shared in there is the learned helplessness uh, research where, you know, in the 1960s, they took these dogs and they put them in this little room with electrical shocks on the floor. And the walls of this room were just like our waist high, you know. And so they would turn the shock on and the floor would get this electrical jolt. And the dog um, had a choice. In one of the rooms, there was a door that they could just walk out of. It was no big deal. So the electrical shock would come on and the dog would jump out of the door, basically. But then in this other room, there was no door. And so you turn the electrical shock on and the dog would jump around and eventually it would just lay on the floor someplace and whimper as these little shocks were going. 
What was fascinating is that the the researchers took those dogs in the room without the escape and put them in the room with the escape, and they turned the electrical switch on, thinking, "Oh, now they have an exit; they're going to just run out." But they didn't. They just they just laid down and they wow. took it because they had learned that there was no point in even trying. And the more you're told that you can't and that you're incapable and you can't do anything good and you're terrible, the more you're going to just learn to be helpless. And when you believe that you're helpless, you stop trying. Uh, and that's just, that's, it doesn't make sense to try if you're helpless. And so that's where the ditch of smallness ends up nurturing us to be oppressed. This is also why um, you know a lot of feminists have talked about how this type of theology has reinforced uh, abusive relationships at home because they, they end up getting belittled, they end up getting, um, you know, just mistreated at home, and they go to church, and they hear this message where we have to stop, you know, thinking of ourselves all the time, and we have to lay ourselves down as a sacrifice to others, and so they walk away from that thinking that it's my righteous burden to be oppressed and abused, and and so this this kind of smallness thinking can, can really kind of... Um, pepper us and prepare us uh, to be oppressed. The ditch of bigness ends up nurturing us to be oppressors. And how that works is that the more I believe that I'm fundamentally good, just the way I am, the more, obviously, my life problems must exist from somebody else. Because if I'm good, if I'm great, if I'm wonderful, then my problems must originate somewhere else. And 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 when I surround myself with like-minded people or or positive people, basically I'm surrounding myself because positivity is never defined in the positive thinking movement. It's just assumed what it means. Mm. And so what it ends up being is I end up surrounding myself with people who just agree with me and who like me and I, who I like and whatever. And so I end up nurturing this idea that that I'm in the right and the problems lie in everybody else. And uh, and then when I start to avoid negative people, which is just the next step, um, then I start to separate myself from others, uh, and I and I and I continue to exalt myself as good just the way I am. And the problems lie in them, who I've separated myself from. And the the more I do that, the more they become inferior in my mind, and um, uh, and the more I'm gonna just oppress them. I mean, I'm going to view them more and more insignificantly and the burden, the, I don't know what you would call it, the resistance to oppress them gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and in these positive thinking, self-esteem mantras really fuel that. Uh, and I share a couple stories in there about people who, um, they just, they go down this path and they, they end up surrounding themselves with positive people who end up just kind of, cause here's the thing is you can go, you can look at like white nationalist groups and you can look at Antifa groups and black lives matters groups. And you look at these, these hotshot personalities in all of these groups. And you'll find that surround yourself with positive people message in all of these groups. And they're clearly not talking about the same people. And so what they, end up doing is they just they end up surrounding themselves with themselves and and um and they continuously end up exalting themselves over others and so the ditch of bigness nurtures us to be oppressors the ditch of smallness nurtures us to be oppressed humility i think takes the 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 power out of both um mm. and uh it's i think the best antidote to oppression so if it hasn't become clear yet could you give a definition of what how how you would define humility and, and and perhaps explain a little bit of how you might think and as we kind of wrap up this discussion here how genuine humility leads us to the solution of these problems and provides real transformation to ourselves and the world around us. Mm -hmm. Well, um, 
That's a, that's a tall order. I think the the first thing with humility, the foundational definition that I would have for it is that humility, the more humble we get, the more we realize that we are loved by God and that that's, we have that unsurpassable value. Um, and that also means that we also realize the unsurpassable equality with others. And so humility has to do with understanding this unsurpassable security that we have and this unsurpassable equality that we have. And so the the behaviors of humility are things that uh, reflect that security and that equality. And um, in the same way that the more humble I get, the more secure in myself I get. Now, uh, if, if humility is being unsurpassably equal, then shame and pride are a lie. Because uh, shame is a feeling of being inferior to others, and pride is a feeling of being superior to others. But if we're all unsurpassably equal, then those must be illusions. Um, shame and pride must be illusions. So growing into humility is recognizing the illusion of uh, inferiority and superiority. Um, in the same way that growing into the security of the self is uh, uh, kind of... Um, you know, takes shame and pride out of our lives. It also takes inferiority and superiority out of our lives. And in that way, it kind of takes the power out of any potential oppression of one group over another. Um, and so that's that's where that's where it, it really kind of revolutionizes uh, our our posture towards the rest of the people in the world and ourselves. Um, and then what that also does is that if I have that profound security, I can now engage life because if I believe that it's possible that some people are better than me. I have a completely different orientation towards life because now I'm entering the world as an insecure soul that some people are better than me and I could be demoted. I could be inferior to them I, or I could move up and I could become superior over them. And now everything that I do is sort of like a stepping stone in this hierarchy, this hierarchical game. And so I might go to college because I want to be somebody. And what I mean by that is I want to be one of the good people. I want to be one of the effective people. I want to be somebody who uh, adds value or whatever language you want to use that says I'm better than these other people. Mm. We end up orienting our whole lives around kind of moving up in this hierarchy. The, the crazy thing about that is it really ends up sabotaging our effectiveness because uh, if you think of it this way, Who's going to be able to focus on their task more? Uh, somebody who doesn't really care about the outcome or somebody who's worried that if they don't succeed at this, they're going to be demoted and inferior to others. Man, that guy, if you really think that your ego is at stake in whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's playing the cello or giving a, a lecture on tree frogs, it's going to be a lot harder to focus on your content than a person who just doesn't care about the outcome because they're secure in God's love already. Um, and that's where the, the sort of confidence piece comes in. And so that's why I think that with this understanding of humility is that we are loved by God fundamentally. Um, we have the potential to be good or bad, but fundamentally we're neither. We're just loved by God. And that love is unsurpassable. It's, it's constant. It's, he loved us while we were at our worst, so we can't lose it. It's, that's, it's like it's the, the electron to mass ratio in the universe, and the love that God has for us is just constant. And that's like this immobile, this immobile security that we have. And with that, now I can go and I can give a presentation on tree frogs, it doesn't do anything to me. Like mm. if if I bomb this presentation, 
I'm fine, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Um, unfortunately, my students didn't learn what they could have learned about tree frogs, but, you know, there'll be other opportunities. Whereas if I'm, if I don't have that security, now all I have is my productivity and my, mm. my, what I do in the world. And that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on everything that I do. Uh, and so that's, that's where, um, that's, those are some of the things that humility can do. Um, uh, it's brilliant. That's a brilliant, uh, it's brilliant insights, Dan. And when you first shared with me the, um, this book, um, my reaction was, well, I don't know what else could be said about this subject. Mm-hmm. And it really is a unique, wonderful contribution to the mm-hmm. conversation. Because I think when you talk about humility being this, this fundamental understanding of your own uh, love that the love that that God has for you and the way that God sees you and that it's also shared by others in the world it, it fills you with the sort of thing that the the it's the counterfeit self-help movement was trying to get at right, right. it was it was trying to lift you up out of this this place of shame and at the same time it also grounds you in the reality of if my neighbor is of equal value that they are equally loved Am I treating him that way, right? And so it's not a. I, there's even a, there's been some even more recent Christian movements, kind of almost like hyper grace movements that have almost said, "Well, Christians don't need to repent anymore." Mm. And I th- I find that to be wow. strange. And it's not yeah. that like your positional difference that you lose your union with Christ or any of that that sort of ontological change that happens mm. when we become one with God in Christ, but. I find it interesting that people still couldn't go, well, there's the possibility that I might not be seeing my neighbor or seeing myself or seeing the world around me as God sees me. Man. Well, yeah, that's it's funny that you say that because I just gave a sermon two weeks ago on repentance. And um, and it, repentance was the first teaching that Jesus gave in Matthew, in Matthew 4. He that's said, right. re, was the very first thing he taught was repent for the kingdom of God has come near. But that comes right after this prophecy, I think from... I think from Jeremiah, might be from Isaiah, where he talks about how this whole city was wandering around in the dark, and then all of a sudden there was this light on a hill, and now they could see where they needed to go. And then right after that, Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. That is, if you view repentance as this thing that bad boys and bad girls do after they've sinned, well, yeah, maybe you don't need to do that. But repentance is a lot more robust than that in the scriptures. Repentance is the thing that that treasure hunters do when they're when they're pursuing a treasure. They say, "Oh, shoot, I'm on the wrong path. I need to switch paths." It's what adventurers do. It's 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 this journey towards God, and we're we're getting ever closer and closer to God. And repentance is when we turn into the right direction. And so I hear that and I'm like, that's terrible to not, you know, I don't view it as we don't have to repent anymore. I would view it as, you mean we don't get to repent anymore? Mm. I mean, that's, repentance I think is, that's, that's one of the thrilling things about faith is repenting. So this is a huge aside, I apologize. No, 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 it's not a huge aside. It's wonderfully on point (laughs) because the joy of repentance is such a, would be a weird thing to say if you didn't have this fundamental understanding of your, your, your supreme worth to God. Yeah. 
because then if it was always up in the air, I think that might be the thing behind the like the never repent sort of, and it is a niche sort. Yeah. I wouldn't say this is mainstream theolo- right. theology in any sort of textbook I've read, but I've just noticed it in, in some some church trends, this, this sort of attitude. And you could see that if you thought that your worth was up in the air. Uh, depending on your behavior. And and instead, it's like, well, no, my worth isn't, but the sort of harm I can do in creation, the capacity that I do have to do harm in creation is is still a very real phenomenon that we acknowledge. Well, and this is where the ditch of bigness gets in trouble because it's like when we love something, we love something because we think it's good. Like I love chocolate chip cookies because I think they're good. Mm. They taste good, and, and that's why I love it. Um God doesn't love like that. God's love is a lot more robust than my dumb little love. You know, he loved us while we were still sinners. And and so the ditch of bigness, a lot of times they end up saying, well, if God loves me with an unsurpassable love, I must be unsurpassably good. In the same way, because when I love something, I think it's good. Right. And that's not the case. God loves you with an unsurpassable love, but man, we have a lot of work to do still. Um, and the ditch of smallness ends up kind of ruining things in a different way. It's like, you can't do anything good unless God does it, so you just have to wait on God. Let go, let God is sort of the mantra of the ditch of smallness. But, you know, here's just a small list. I I literally, like, I I have, like, pages and pages of this, but these are some of the things that God calls us to do, okay? We have to learn, each of us, we're called to learn to bear with each other in Colossians 3.13, to overcome evil with good, to flee evil... How do you do that? Flee evil desires. That's something I need to learn. Um, To avoid godless chatter. That's I could learn that. Uh, To turn away from wickedness, to live in peace, to encourage the disheartened, to be patient with all, to not be idle, to not seek vengeance. Man... That's that's something we have to learn too, because we want to seek vengeance all the time. Uh, to not be idle, to not to uh, rejoice always, to respect and test prophecy, to pray continually. I mean, yeah, God loves me with an unsurpassable love, but I got work to do. I'm not done yet. I got things I still need to uh, do, and that's why that's what discipleship is. That's what my faith walk is, and and each of these things requires a lot of repentance because I'm going to have compulsions to seek vengeance as I learn how to not seek vengeance. And each time I have to repent and change direction and move more closer to the light on the hill. Um, and so, yeah, I, those I think... Those are great. I, I, I like to think of those as invitations to participate with what the Spirit's already doing. And that's that's where we get this deep sense. This is where a rich pneumatology comes in, where we, we get this empowerment of the Spirit to act in the world in a way that might even be contrary to our base animal instincts. Yeah. And it's a it's a synergistic cooperation with, you know, and this is something I boy I didn't know this until I started reading church history. This is something the patristic many of the early church fathers understood. And again, reference back to my conversation with Dr. Matthew Matthew J. Thomas if you want to check that one out. But it was the sense that all goodness, truth, and beauty anywhere where it exists is is uh, is because of Christ. Right, and so insofar as we participate and see any goodness in the world, the source of that is Christ. And understanding that, I I get a sense of well, I'm getting invited into, and that you know those are those are New Testament injunctions mm-hmm. to people who have already professed faith. 
in Jesus. And so these are things that they didn't instantly get downloaded with. Just like when I got married to my wife, I wasn't instantly downloaded with this perfect way of understanding her or uh, loving her. And yet there was this journey I had to go on. We get invited into this wonderful, beautiful journey that I think we should, as you say, we can. Re- I like that we can repent joyfully Absolutely. when we see these things. Yeah, it's good news. I mean, it is because uh, we want the treasure, we and do. so we want to be moving in the right direction. So if I'm not, a lot of times I think I am, and I'm not. And when I realize that I'm not, Hallelujah! I'm done wasting time on this dumb path. I can now get closer to where I'm, I'm trying to be. And I'm done doing destructive things yeah. to people around me. That's right. I can see it as the, the 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 sorts of things I don't want to I don't want to participate in dysfunction anymore. I want to participate in God's functional picture for reality and yeah. what He's doing in renewing the cosmos, and that's that's the the treasure I, I want to be I want yeah. to be hunting. Well, Dan, this has been great. Thank you for setting aside time. Would you just tell us a little bit of, of, again about the what's the title of the book? Where could we? pick it up and maybe where could, uh, is there some places people could connect with you? Yeah. uh, So the book is called Confident Humility, Becoming Your Full Self Without Becoming Full of Yourself. And it's uh, available June 11th and it's available for pre-order right now. Pre-order right now. That's that's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it's available on Amazon, on Barnes and Noble, on uh, IndieBound. And I think it's going to be on the Logo system as well. And um, I am on Twitter all the time. I do social media for Renew, and then I also just like Twitter. And, and I try to be as interactive as possible with people because I try to remain social on social media yeah. instead because so many people just view it as media, and, I, uh, and it's not for me. Well, I mean, that's uh, actually how we connected, though we live right. here in the Twin Cities. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of, boy, social media, social media is a great example of humans, right? There's yeah. a yeah. tremendous capacity for harm, but yet there is this immense opportunity for, for participation and goodness. And I've connected with so many great people, me and, too. including including yourself via that avenue. So I would encourage you guys to, to check out Dan's stuff there. Go pick up his book. He also has other books available at his website. You have a website yeah, too as well? D- thatdankent.com and I'm on Twitter at thatdankent and and so. I, I, you know what just practically he's doing this without wavering he's out of the ditch of smallness he has no problem no. sharing the things no. that God's put on the no. inside of him the gifts that he has That's to right. share with the world and this is where like genuine humility sets you free to That's be right. this sorts of yeah. person that God's made you to be in the world. That's right. And I think that uh, the, for me, that's been the big thing, because if, you, if you're in the ditch of smallness, humility always means thinking less of yourself, pretending like you're dumb when you're not, pretending like you're ugly when you're not, and all that kind of insincerity. And, and you know, I, I think I celebrate when people, like uh, I love, who was it, James Harden, just this week, uh, he said that, uh, uh, he said that, I can't remember exactly how he said it now, shoot, but he, <laughs> he, he basically said that they were down two games to none. And he's like, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the type of person who, you know, this team, we need, we need somebody who can step up and take big shots. And there's nobody better at me at that than me, he says. And it's like, that's confidence. That's like, and he might be right. (laughs) I don't think there are many people better than James Harden. Right. I mean, it was corresponding with reality, which is the key, right? right. This is the way that we see ourselves and the world around us actually correspond with reality the way it is. And for, for James Harden, as much as he's a flopper, that is a, <laughs> yeah, my, right. my, my son. Uh, I've got a four-year-old who's really into basketball, maybe because dad and older brother are. And he he says, I was playing with a, a, my 10-year-old and I was telling Ryder, Ryder, you, you get to pick what team we are. 
Um, and he, he's got two teams for whatever he really, really likes. Uh, Boston Celtics, which is weird, like a four-year-old. Like it's he, the green. It's the, the green. green. Yeah. It is. He's, yeah. all right, Dad, you're Boston. And, and uh, Justice, you're, you're the Rockets. And you can be the guy with the mustache. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So on that note, Dan, thanks thanks for the conversation. This has been tremendously beneficial. As always, guys, we invite, I invite, uh, this is an opportunity for nuanced dialogue about these important issues. By no means do you have to agree with anything Dan or I have shared on this program. And we invite you to discussion about these ideas. Feel free to leave comments on um, the various podcast platforms of your choice. You can connect Dan and I on Twitter, even on uh, YouTube. We post all this stuff on YouTube as well. So we welcome your feedback. How has this conversation impacted you? What are some insights that you have as you've listened? And what are maybe even some objections that you have? We welcome it all. Uh, So until next time. Well, guys, I've just found each one of these conversations to be tremendous. I, I just love the, the people that I'm getting to talk to in the unique areas of passion and expertise that they have. And hopefully you are enjoying it too. If so, I would invite you to become a supporter on Patreon to support the work I'm doing on this podcast and on YouTube. Speaking of YouTube, you can check out last week I released a short video on the theology found in Avengers Endgame and Marvel movies and the superhero genre. So if you haven't, you can also subscribe to Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making on YouTube, where there is uh, exclusive video content, things that work specifically on that video format that maybe don't work as well in an audio-only podcast. So you can go over there and subscribe if you're a YouTuber as well. And again, thank you guys for your support. Thank you for the kind messages and interactions I've gotten on Twitter and YouTube and the reviews that you've left. It means the world to me. We've got some other great guests coming over the next few episodes, so I I can't wait to share those with you as well. Till next time.